So really the pitch and more importantly, the presentation is probably the most important element of raising capital. And the biggest mistake, like I said earlier, is people generally pitch way too early in the process. That other person doesn't trust you enough to physically open their checkbook. They're going to be cordial and they will be polite, but more than likely you'll get a lot of excuses as to why they don't want to move forward. Hey, investors, you are listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Welcome investors. Good afternoon. My name is Garrett Wong. I'm your host of the Investing to Win podcast. Today, I have Brad Blazar. Is it Blazar or Blazer, Brad? I'll, I'll respond to both. It's actually Blazer, but Blazar. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I, I'm going to, you know, we'll call it Blazer then because I don't want to butcher your name there. But anyways, um, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, it's been an honor. And what I'd like to do is uh, for those of the audience who don't know you, although I don't know how many there would be that wouldn't, why don't you give us a little bit of background, kind of tell us uh, about your story. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of known globally as uh, the guy that's raised $2 billion through his efforts and the efforts of other people. But my journey as an investor, and more importantly, as a capital raiser, started relatively young. I was in school studying to be an architect and ultimately went to work for a very small oil company part-time where they taught me how to get on the phone and build relationships with individual investors. And over the course of about a year, I realized that I was making considerably more money than most of the architects I knew. And so I doubled down and uh, at the age of 21, invested in myself. Garrett launched an oil company, printed up some business cards, some letterhead. And looking back, I laughed because I knew absolutely nothing about drilling for oil, knew absolutely nothing about building businesses, but I knew how to surround myself with people that did. And uh, built a pretty profitable, nice size oil business. We had about 35 employees and we were drilling in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana. And, uh, you know, we were raising millions of dollars from individuals all over the United States. And uh, fast forward, when I started consulting entrepreneurs about three and a half years ago, I would always ask them a key question. And I would say something like, Garrett, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you like to be doing? And I would get all kinds of answers from, oh my God, I always wanted to open a restaurant or I've wanted to go into business or get in real estate. And the second question would always be great. What's holding you back? And the interesting thing is it was never the fear or the limiting belief. It always came down to the fact they didn't have two nickels to rub together and they lacked the capital to get their big project off the ground. And I said, man, don't you realize every day when you wake up, you're surrounded by all the money you need to pretty much do anything in life you want. We call these other people investors. And so a little light bulb went off in my head and I realized I could take my 30 years of knowledge, raising roughly $2 billion, package that up, codify it, create key concepts that I could then deliver to the world and really help people in a dramatic way that have this desire to do something big in life where those desires maybe have been extinguished or diminished and now need to be reignited. And so, you know, today we're doing business in roughly 25, 30 countries around the world. I think we're probably one of the largest, if not the largest, coaching and mentoring platform, really just teaching others how to attract investors, imparting the knowledge as to what you say to people when you get their interest, how to launch funds and how to do all those things. But really, that's how my journey got started. It really that I wasn't looking to do this. I kind of just half or stands fell right into it. Okay. No, that that's super, super interesting. I got to back up a um, couple of minutes here. So you started an oil company without knowing anything about that. Tell, tell me a little bit more. That, that's really interesting. Yeah. 
So when I was in school, like I said, I wanted to be an architect. Yeah, this was now in my fourth year. Architecture is a five-year degree program. And so in my senior year, you know, I'm in my early 20s, starting a date, realize that, you know, you need a little bit of money in your pocket to go on the good dates. And so I started looking for part-time jobs. And, you know, back then, of course, we didn't have the internet. I was just getting out the newspaper and circling ads and mailing out and faxing over resumes. And I got a call from uh, this very small oil company. And they said, you know, is this Brad? Yep, great. This is so-and-so over here. And uh, the CEO would like to bring in and interview you. And I had no idea what he saw in me. I mean, I was a little cocky, confident 20-year-old kid. And he said, I'd love to give you a job. We're going to bring you in and between your classes and after school, because we can call out to the West Coast. We're going to teach you how to get on the phone and build relationships and develop trust with individuals and basically, uh, you know, hopefully convince them to invest with us in our oil and gas drilling programs. I said, great. And I was being paid a commission back then, but literally working probably 12 to 15 hours a week, I was making six figures. And I'm like, if I'm doing this, just working part time, 12 to 15 hours, like how much more can I make, you know, working a full 40 hour work week? And so uh, unbeknownst to my parents, who, like most parents, scrimped and saved to put their kids through school, I just one day turned my back to my education and just basically got straight F's that semester. Flunked out, quit going to class. My parents went ballistic, of course, when they got my grades. And um, I just doubled down and I started doing this full time and, uh, you know, was making great money. Um, Took $10,000 and I printed up some business card and some letterhead and went to the investors that I had largely cultivated and said, look, I've hired a petroleum landman. I've got a geologist. We're raising money on our first deal. We're going to be drilling for some oil and natural gas here on these leases. And people started throwing money at me. And I think the reason is I knew the system. You know, Jordan Belfort, the wolf on Wall Street, talks about a sales process. He calls it basically the straight line method. The the, the system I use, which I've codified in the concept, we call it the four-step blueprint. But the two of them are very similar. And the biggest mistake that we always see people make, Garrett, that try to raise capital is they have somebody that is of significant net worth or could be a potential investor, and they pitch the opportunity way too prematurely in the process. And that other person is naturally going to say, well, Garrett, you know, it sounds like an interesting uh, deal. Do you have some information you can send over to me that I can take a look at? And so you send them everything. You send them your pitch deck. You send them the memorandum or whatever you got, your executive summary. And when it comes time for you to close them, they never open their checkbook. And you're sitting there going like, what did I do wrong? Well, what you did wrong is you did not give them enough time to know you. See, people won't invest with you until they trust you, obviously. Trust does not happen overnight. It does not happen on the first conversation or the second. Typically takes three or four meetings or conversations. So the best advice I always give to people is slow the process down. Let people know you before they will flow you. Grant Cardone says that line as well. But um, yeah, before I knew anything about oil, all I knew how to do was raise capital. And the big message, I think, for your listeners is you do not have to be old or more mature to raise money successfully. You do not necessarily have to know a lot about the business. But if you surround yourself with a team of other people that you can point to, that can show investors you have the depth and experience within the team, you can become very successful building a business and raising millions of dollars. It all comes down to one word. And Kevin Harrington from Shark Tank, who was a speaker at one of my events, said that word is execute. If you can convince me you can execute, you got all the money in the world. That's that's really uh, profound because, I mean, I'm 52 years old. It's a lot easier for me it seems anyways, because I've been doing this for 25 plus years, you know, to, to get with an investor, even on a smaller deal. And I've got that track record. But I mean, a lot of our audience are just starting out, you know, again, you're mid 20s, you don't have a track record. How do you establish that trust? You know, it's a great question. And uh, what I will share with you is uh, one of my close contacts 
uh, met him actually at an event that I was speaking at about a year and a half ago. His name is Abbas Muhammad. He's in the multifamily and the commercial sector. And the host of the event said, I want to recognize somebody here in the audience. Abbas, stand up. And this little kid must have been 25, 26, stands up. He said, how many apartments do you own? And he's like, 780. And how much have you raised? 25 million. And I'm going, this guy's in his 20s. What makes him any different than everybody else in that room that's in their 20s, 30s, 40s? I think the real secret is he just got started. He was confident and he took action. See, I was in my 20s and I got started. And as a result of the momentum and just meeting with people and having conversations, I became successful. So the way that you basically convince individuals and investors to invest despite any track record, despite any prior history, despite any experience, is you build a team of people. You say, look, I've got a CPA. He's going to be keeping the books and records. He's going to be sending out the quarterly statements. He's going to make sure you get your tax reporting information at the end of the year. I've got an attorney. He's going to make sure we dot our I's, we cross our T's. I've got this guy over here that's got 30 years of experience in renovations and rehabs as our contractor. I've got this guy over here that's also got experience. And so by showing that you've got a team, what you're really doing, Garrett, is you're showing that potential investor that you are not a solopreneur doing everything yourself. You're an entrepreneur that understands how to build a business. And that's what people want to invest with is entrepreneurs that know how to build businesses. Okay. Um, but you use the word, I think you said Harrington uh, said it, execute. Correct. Um, what What's the definition of executing when you're presenting something to a high net worth investor? I mean, what does execute mean in in your mind? It's really giving that individual the perception that whatever it is you're trying to do, are you rehabbing some houses? Are you developing a multifamily property? Are you acquiring a property as a value add? If you can convince me that you and the team of people you've assembled can follow up on that investment objective and bring this project or projects to fruition, then you're much more likely to get me to invest with you. Uh, if I look at you and I have doubt and I'm like, well, I don't know if this guy can pull it off, then I'm going to be much more apprehensive and perhaps ask many, many more questions. But really, the key is, can I look at you with the belief that you can do what you're telling me you want to do? So if you're raising money to do this, can I believe that you'll be successful at doing it? That's really, at the end of the day, what that word execute or execution means. is can you execute on the investment objective to deliver a return to me as an investor so that if I give you my hard-earned capital, I'll get it back, plus the return on investment that you're telling me, hopefully you and your team can provide to me. Okay, the team approach. No, I like that because there's going to be a lot of listeners who might have done, let, let's, let's do a case study. Let's pretend that I'm 25. I've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like everybody else has. And I've uh, been attending a lot of networking events and I, I'm now ready, right? I feel like I have the knowledge. I've uh, got a good wholesaler and I've got some potential properties, but I don't actually have a deal under my belt. I've never actually executed on whatever it's going to be a flipper or burr or whatever, what's your flavor? How does that individual, even with the team approach, convince an investor that they can do it? It's really just being confident. It's understanding that, you know, in your pitch deck, you should have more than just your picture. Ask the CPA, ask the attorney, ask the other professionals that you might be working with, your general contractor, the person that's going to be doing the rehab if you're doing any renovation work. You know, hey, do you mind if I basically, uh, you know, put you in my presentation to potential investors uh, as one of our strategic partners or as one of my advisors? And if they say no, then in your pitch deck, you know, now you've got depth. You've got an organization. A person can see that. They see, well, you know, while you might not have an accountant or an attorney on staff that you're paying a salary to, you have one. That's a good sign. You have this. You have that. And really, for that investor, the perception is, I see depth in your business. 
you get it. And at the end of the day, it's really that investor looking at you saying, does this other person get it? Like they understand there has to be some form of transparency. So they've got this for the accounting. They've got this for the legal. They probably are going to send out, hopefully at a minimum, a quarterly newsletter to keep me and other investors abreast and up to date on what's going on with the various projects. And so when you look at this process of raising capital, it's really articulating what you and the people you work with are capable of. Because in the coaching and mentoring that we provide to literally thousands of people, I talk about a concept and it's called the trust sequence. Once you understand this six-step process of building trust within another person, you understand what you're supposed to be trying to accomplish in each meeting or conversation. Very first thing on the list is perception. When a potential investor meets with you, they're deciding in the first few minutes whether there will ever be a second date. (laughs) And so if you're able to convince them through the perception, and that's largely based on what's the quality of the materials you have. What does your website communicate? What does your social media presence communicate? But more importantly, what do you and your team communicate? They'll move forward to the next step in the process, which is they want to learn more. They want to get some information. They want to take a closer look. And then it's just a matter of following the steps in the process we teach to hopefully get them to open their checkbook and invest with you. Okay. Well, you've used the word pitch deck uh, a few times already in the interview. Um, Obviously, I know what that is, but um, some some of our audience might not. Why don't we break that down, get into the weeds a little bit? What exactly is a pitch deck? A pitch deck really, I believe, is one of the most important things anybody that wants to raise capital can have. It takes your business, uh, your executive summary, your business plan, and it really articulates that to an investor. And pictures are great because, you know, the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. It is so true, uh, especially in raising capital, where the desire for somebody to invest is largely driven by an emotional desire, the relationship that's developed. Uh, and I certainly would not argue that people do get emotionally attached to certain projects. But really what the pitch deck is, it's a PowerPoint presentation typically that introduces you and your team, talks about the investment or the investment objective, might bring up any prior performance or any experience you've had in the space, talks about the returns that hopefully will be derived and provided to investors, and then usually compels that person to next steps. And really all you're trying to do when you pitch, and your pitch should be no more than 15 to 20 minutes, is to very concisely articulate five to seven key bullet points or benefits to that investor as to what this investment will do for them. One of the big secrets about raising large amounts of capital is to be able to tie that investment to benefits so that that investor realizes by investing, I'll be able to do this. And that comes about in what I call the temptation phase, which is actually step two in that six-step trust sequence I referenced earlier. It's asking that potential investor a lot of great questions. Like, have you invested in anything like this before? When you invest, what are you looking for? Income, growth, tax benefits, or maybe a combination of all the above. What's your time horizon? Are you trying to do something special with the money that you're investing with us today? And if they say something like, yeah, I'm trying to save and put my kids through school, or I'm trying to save and grow my capital to buy a vacation home. When you're pitching, wouldn't it be great to in your CRM system where you've been keeping good notes, say, Garrett, can you see how investing with us in this project will help you accomplish that goal that you stated earlier by growing your capital to put your kids through school or buy that vacation home that you mentioned earlier? Now they see the two connect, and that's how you close people. It's that emotion that says, if I do this, I'll get that. And so you have to be a really good question asker in raising capital, which is why I provide all of the students a list of roughly 25 questions 
uh, because, you know, most people just that have never raised capital that are new to this need a little bit of training and a little bit of guidance. But people, if you ask proper questions, will actually tell you the things you need to properly close them and get them to invest in your projects or in your business. But you got to do it the right way. That's why so many people set out trying to raise money and blunder and go about it in a very haphazard process. And then they just give up, unfortunately, thinking that raising capital from investors is next to impossible. It's really not. It's just that it requires you to practice and really understand the process of building trust and getting people to commit. Okay. So, Brad, that was, that was really interesting because you're saying this is a multi-step process. You can't just come out and here's my business card, here's my pitch deck, here's my deal. You're taking the time to actually meet the person, establish trust, build a relationship, ask those 20, 25 questions to try to get to know them. And then when you're actually trying to match a deal with them, you are picking those points that you think will resonate with them. Is that accurate? Absolutely, 100%, Garrett. When I coach and mentor people, One of the first things I explain to them is I've taken roughly 30 years of raising hundreds of millions of dollars, everything I've done right, everything I've done wrong, and I've codified that knowledge and created key concepts. And these key concepts we call the four-step blueprint, the trust sequence, the validation phrase, the million-dollar pitch. And as a student, once you understand these things and then apply them, to the conversations and meetings you have, you will ultimately have tremendous success. But the pitch really should not take place until the third or fourth conversation. You want to really get to know people. You want to allow them, more importantly, to get to know you, your values, that you can be trusted as a person. But within the pitch, what you're largely doing is you're going back using the information you've hopefully discovered And you're saying, by investing with us, do you see how this will help you accomplish the goal you stated earlier of doing this? Yes. Great. How much do you see yourself investing with us today? And then you just go straight to the close and you begin the process of hopefully onboarding them. So really the pitch and more importantly, the presentation is probably the most important element of raising capital. And the biggest mistake, like I said earlier, is people generally pitch way too early in the process. That other person doesn't trust you enough to physically open their checkbook. They're going to be cordial and they will be polite, but more than likely you'll get a lot of excuses as to why they don't want to move forward. Yeah. Do you find, I mean, as your students get on, obviously, you know, in their courses and experience, they're going to have quite a few investors that they're going to be having relationships and pitching to, once you have that, you know, that CRM, that database of those questions, you find it's more advantageous to really try to match a deal that does resonate better with certain investors? I mean, obviously, I mean, maybe that's an obvious question, but I mean, is that something that you would encourage? Um, If you can certainly do that, yes, but that's really not that important. I personally don't believe Uh, And the reason for that is you don't want to silo your investors and really try to remember or delineate, you know, this person only does this or this person only does that. We just basically work with all of the investors and those that have expressed interest, we bring any and all deals to. The thought is, you know, some will, some won't. So what? There's always going to be people that are interested or who have expressed interest that are willing and wanting to invest. Most accredited investors realize that their money is nothing more than a tool and their money should be working for them. And so they're always looking for opportunities and things to be placing capital in. Uh, And the way that we go about this is we use something called the validation phrase, which I always ask at the end of my second conversation with somebody, because what I'm doing in the first call, the second call is I'm really disarming people. And I'm letting them know, hey, right now, I just don't have anything that I can discuss with you as it relates to an investment. And I just tell them that. And in the end of my second conversation, use this phrase, because what it does for me 
is it confirms they trust me enough to move forward in the process to now let me pitch. Yeah, and this is golden. I mean, it's literally taken me literally years to perfect this, but it goes something like, Gary, you know, I really have enjoyed getting to visit with you. As, as I've expressed right now, I just do not have an investment that I can discuss with you. And the reason is I typically like to give my existing investors the right of first refusal on any new program or any new deal that comes about. But here's what I'd like to do. I keep a list of people on my desk. And I'd like to add your name to that list, Garrett, because you've expressed interest and get back with you in the future if I have a deal or a project that I think you could get real excited about. How does that sound to you? And when they say, yes, please do that, they're exceptionally acknowledging subconsciously that they want to move forward in this process with you. And so what do you think you're doing on that third meeting? You're calling, you're spending three to five minutes, you know, warming them up again. And you say, if you remember, you asked me to put you on my list. Just so happens I'm working on a deal. It's a great project. I think you're going to get real excited when you hear it. You have five to seven minutes, and this is when you pitch. And this is when you give them three to five of the key bullet points. And they hopefully say, yeah, send me the information. I'd love to take a look at that. So what you're really doing is you're setting yourself up for that presentation, but doing it at the right time with this framework that we've developed over many years of raising hundreds of millions of dollars so that you're not pitching or presenting too early and then getting an excuse why that person can't invest. By asking that phrase, getting their acknowledgement, and then pitching, you're significantly increasing your chances of closing them and raising potentially millions and millions more in dollars than going about it in a proper method. Because I always get people that say, Brad, look, you know, we've already raised 50 million bucks. We're looking at your program, but realistically, what can you do for us that we're not already doing? And it's a simple answer. It's like, well, you want to be good at raising capital or you want to be great? Because you see, amateurs practice until they get it right. Pros practice until they don't get it wrong. And I've been doing this 30 years. And if I can impart some knowledge or share with you some things that just help you close an extra 50 to 20% of the people you're talking to, how many more millions does that translate into your business over the next 12 months? They're like, oh, of course, of course. Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital, or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. I was going to ask you, and I guess once you get good at this and you have a Rolodex of people, you might have a so-called good problem to have, but let's say that you've pitched this deal to however many investors and they all want in. How do you choose who gets it? I mean, that's a great problem to have, you know, when you oversubscribe an offering and you can't take everybody or you have too many people, um, you know, it's on a first come, first serve basis. We just tell people it's first on, first in. Um, and so, you know, if we oversubscribe, we'll just keep a list of people. And if some people basically 
are not forthcoming with their capital commitments, we eventually give them a couple of days and we just tell them, look, you know, if you're not able to write the check, I got a list of other people that are. And so I'm sorry, we'll have to get you in on our next deal or our next program. Or you go back to people and say, you know, I know that you had intentions of investing 100. Would you be okay putting 75 and doing 25 maybe on our next deal? Because I have a couple of extra people that would like to get in on this and I need to try to make room for them. So there's always ways you can finagle a capital raise in a deal. But that's a great problem to have. I mean, I wish that was a problem that everybody had. It's you're doing such a great job, you're oversubscribing and you're filling up your fund or you're filling up with your deals. But it's one of those things where a lot of people will commit. And then what you'll find is they're not able to move forward or they're not able to move forward perhaps at the level that they had committed to. And then you just take a little bit less. Okay. Okay. So I'm just trying to, you know, you used a term accredited investor. I actually only work with accredited investors. I know a bunch of different investors that, you know, choose to work with friends and family. Can you define for us and the audience what an accredited investor is? Sure. An accredited investor, by definition, is somebody that has an earned annual income of $200,000 in the two most recent years and has the expectation of earning that in the current year. But if they don't meet the income threshold, has a million dollars in personal net worth exclusive of their home. That is the definition of an accredited investor. Now, if that person is married and has a spouse, the accreditation on the income then goes up to 300,000. The problem that a lot of people have that choose to work with non-accredited investors, these are typically friends and family or people that might be professionals but only make 80. $100,000 a year, don't have significant net worth, maybe their net worth is $500,600, is at least here in the United States, and maybe they're in Canada, it's very similar because I know the Canadian laws are very similar. The disclosure standards go up tremendously, meaning you really need to provide much greater risk disclaimers, disclosures to them. But what a lot of people don't understand is the regulatory environment also says you're supposed to maintain the same accounting standards as that of a public reporting company. That means audited financials. And for a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs, that's a huge expense and a huge commitment. Most people don't have the infrastructure to have audited financials. And when you look at the Regulation D environment that many people operate with the Reg D, Here in the United States, you can only have up to 35 non-accredited investors, no more than that. And so if you're trying to raise, you know, let's just say $25 million in a fund or for a large project, you may only end up realistically having 8, 12, 15 non-accredited investors. You may not use up all of those slots. Why do you want to go through the mental brain damage for maybe a dozen people or 20 people? We're much like you said, Garrett, and much like we do as well. If all your investors are accredited, or if you're dealing with more institutional quality like family offices, private wealth management firms that invest with you, RIAs, you don't have to deal with any of those headaches. Matter of fact, there's no law or there's no SEC requirement here in the United States that says you need to have a private placement memorandum if you're dealing with accredited investors. Mm-hmm. So people always ask me, like, why am I spending all this money getting one if I technically and legally don't need it? The answer is it's your insurance policy. 100%. All the best underwriting and all the best planning cannot protect you from a recession. It cannot protect you from a change in tax legislation that changes the tax code and maybe takes away some of the tax incentives that were in place when you started the project, but might not be there three years down the road. Certainly something like COVID that came out of left field. Mm-hmm. So now in private placement memorandums, if they're well-written, we actually have something called the COVID clause that states in the event something similar to this ever happens again. So really what you're trying to do is you're trying to be as transparent as you can be and provide full disclosure. These are the potential risks that can happen. Most of them probably won't, but they can. 
And by disclosing them, you're creating an insurance policy around yourself to hopefully eliminate arbitration and lawsuits. Because well, it's also you know, credibility too, right? Well, credibility, but also we know that any business has fluidity to it. You know, you can't predict in three to five years what will happen in real estate. But if you say, you know, look at the historical track record, real estate does go through cycles. While we're telling you that we anticipate a three to five year hold on this investment, it may end up being five to seven years because we certainly don't want to sell the property at the bottom of a cycle. So by being totally transparent, you're really, like you said, being much more professional, but you're also protecting yourself throughout the entire process. A good capital raiser and somebody that is a true professional will actually tell the investor in the pitch, I would be very remiss, Garrett, if I didn't share with you what some of the risks were, because every investment really does have risk. So here's one risk, but here's what I do. I respond to what we would do in the event that happened. And then I disclose another risk. And I disclose to the investor, here's what we would do in the event that happened. Well, what do you think that investor's thinking to themselves? They're thinking like, yeah, those are risks, but because Garrett has just responded to me how his company would react in the event those happened, more than likely he's probably thought of all of the potential risks. And so what you're essentially doing is you're basically now diminishing any objections they have in their mind because you're putting that big gorilla right in the center of the stage and you're shining a flashlight on it and their subconscious mind is saying, those concerns I had, I don't need to ask because I'm subconsciously thinking they probably have thought of these other things too and they probably have answers to how they would handle those in the event they did appear in the normal course of doing business. So a good capital raiser does not hide the risks he actually presents the risks, responds to the risk from their framework, and basically then just moves forward in the capital raising process. 100%. And uh, I wanted to clarify for the audience, because you've used uh, the U.S. obviously being based there and um, doing your capital raising uh, about accredited investors. But uh, given that this is a Canadian podcast, we do have the exact same rules here. Here in Manitoba, where I'm based, you know, we have the Manitoba Securities Commission. And the reason that these regulatory bodies exist is to protect the public. And I, I think the, you know, the overarching theme there is that an accredited investor, you know, knows better, I guess. They, they should know what they're getting into versus Joe Public that is maybe just trying to give away $50,000 of their hard-earned money just on a promissory note, right? I mean, that's what they're trying to avoid. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, in all the provinces you have throughout Canada, Ontario has their own securities regulatory agency as well. Um, I think that the mindset is that somebody that has significant wealth um, can bounce back and recover from a loss much easier than somebody that's not accredited. You know, if I'm making $300,000 a year as a physician and my net worth is $2 million or more, and I invest forty or fifty thousand, and the deal goes belly up. I can recover much faster than a guy making eighty thousand, whose net worth might only be three or four hundred. Where that's a much more significant percentage of that person's overall net worth, and it's going to really affect them a lot more dramatically than that physician. So I think that also certainly comes into play. But it also is, uh, you know, investment experience. One of the questions I always ask people is tell me about your prior investments. How have they worked for you? How successful have they been? Because if I find out that the person might have had a history of investing in some things that have not worked out or gone as planned, more than likely they're going to be very apprehensive. And I'm going to have to spend considerably more time building that trust. But if they say, oh, you know, I've invested over the years and they've all gone great. We've made money in each and every deal. I know that they're going to be much more inclined, perhaps to feel more comfortable because they have a very different track record than that other person. And so that just comes with knowledge and more importantly, asking great questions. But again, like I said earlier in the podcast, people will actually tell you what you need to know to move them forward to hopefully get them to close and open their checkbook and invest. 
But if you're not asking proper questions and you're not giving yourself the time to know them and allow them to time to know you, you're going to be very, very unsuccessful when it ultimately comes time to close. Because usually what I do at the end of my fourth or fifth meeting is I close the person by saying something like, you know, Garrett, it sounds to me like you have the desire to really work with us. How much of this do you see yourself wanting to invest in? Do you see yourself doing 50,000, 100,000, 150,000, or perhaps do you see yourself doing nothing? And here's the secret. When you give an investor the option to say no, very rarely do they ever do that. And in closing, sales trainers will tell you the first person that speaks next typically loses. So as the person that closed, bite your lips and wait. And they're thinking. And they might come back and say, Brad, tell me again, what what do two units in your program look like? Or or what does $100,000 in your program represent? It represents this. It's an ownership of 10% in the program. Is that something that you're comfortable and capable with today? Second, they say yes. Boom, you go straight to the paperwork. You start the process of onboarding because they've just committed and now you want to basically memorialize the investment, get them signed up, tell them how to wire the money or fill out the check. And then you got to spend what I call 10 to 15 minutes in that cool down, telling them what's going to happen next. A lot of people make the mistake. They get the money, they thank the person, and boom, they're out the door. And what happens is that investor gets anxiety. A lot of times they get cold feet. So I teach all the people that I work with, hey, spend 10 to 15 minutes and tell them what happens next. You're going to get this in the mail, or you're going to get a certificate. You're going to get newsletters. At the end of the year, you're going to get your tax reporting. Here's how you contact us if you have any questions. Here's a link to your investment portal. Hug them. Take a picture. Say you're part of our family. We're going to treat you as if you're one of us. And leave the relationship where they're on an emotional high. So hopefully they now go out and they tell their friends about you. I literally have had calls from people within days of closing an investor where they just call my office and say, hey, is this Mr. Blazer? Yeah. Hey, my friend Garrett just invested with you, was telling me about this investment. And if you have any left, I'd like to know about it and potentially get in too. Because most people that raise money overlook the low-hanging fruit. They never ask for referrals. And it just absolutely amazes me because if you're doing your job and you're delivering solid returns, that person knows other people more than likely of significant or greater wealth. We all know, we've all heard this in the coaching business, you're the average of the five to seven people you spend most of your time with. Mm-hmm. Who do you mm-hmm. think that rich person is hanging out with? Other rich people. Yeah. No, I think what you uh, you just said there resonates because by spending that extra 5, 10, 15 minutes after they've committed, what you're really trying to do is reduce buyer's remorse. Uh, that is, I mean, we do that. I mean, any business should be doing that. You go in and you buy a Corvette or Ferrari. The next day, you're like, what the heck have I done? You certainly don't want to do that after investing in, in a fund, right? Absolutely. You bet. So um, I want to transition just uh, briefly before we uh, uh, quit here, because, you know, in the pre-show, we were talking about you uh, as a real estate investor. You were mentioning, you know, transitioning out of your old single family portfolio, and now you're on your second fund. But as a real estate investor, and you're deeply involved in your syndications, how do you see these current market conditions? You know, I, I mean, how does the market sentiment influence your, your capital raising strategies? I personally have been telling people, and I strongly believe that over the course of the next 18 to 24 months, we're going to see so much opportunity in the real estate space. You know, people are distressed. Uh, Many people, of course, had floating rate debt, and it's become more challenging for them to meet those obligations. Just here in Houston, Texas, which is where I live, a big Texas operator lost three thousand units in an over $200 million foreclosure that represented four different properties. Why? Because he financed them a few years ago with floating rates and the rates went from three to a little over 8%. So I think there's going to be tremendous opportunities in all sectors of real estate. I think that given where we are with you know recession conversations in the news and inflation, certainly, 
a lot of people have become very skittish on the stock market. The stock market, while it's not in bear territory, certainly has not produced for many people the types of returns that it has historically. And so people are looking for other alternatives. And obviously, real estate is in that alternative bucket. And so when we talk about alternative investments, what we're really talking about is things that are not correlated to the broader market. So not stocks, not mutual funds, not ETFs. We're talking about tangible assets, real estate, oil and natural gas drilling. Maybe you're investing in things like exotic automobiles or you know, rare coins or gold. These are what we call the alternative investments that make up the alternative asset class. But I think that right now, at least for us in our business, because we're always having conversations with people, we're always talking, is um, it's as easy as it's ever been. Uh, it really has not been any more challenging because people are sitting either with cash looking for opportunities, or again, they realize their money needs to be working for them doing something. Real estate has always been, I believe, one of the best investments because it provides consistent income. It provides considerable upside appreciation. But more importantly, it provides tremendous tax benefits to people. And so for high income earners and accredited investors, it really is a great investment because it can hit on all three things. It's like, look, man, we're going to be able to give you cash flow. We're going to grow your capital over time and we're going to help lower your taxes. So, you know, I think there's going to be tremendous opportunity. I really do. And I think that the people that want to master what I call the OPM game, using other people's money, need to realize that the way to do that is you need to create, number one, lead generation. So you got to have a way of getting in front of accredited investors or people that have expressed interest. That can be using social media. That can be hosting investor meetups and events. That can be buying a list of accredited investors. Some of our students have done that. It can be joining Facebook communities in groups or finding groups in your community that you can start attending. It actually is so easy every day to meet people with money. But the big secret is how you introduce yourself, how you follow up, and how you create that activity so that if you do want to be a big-time capital raiser, you know, you're having two to three productive conversations with people throughout the week, and then you're following up as you move forward. Uh, it's just a rinse and repeat process. You know, you go from getting your first investor to realizing, holy shit, this stuff actually works, to onboarding your third, to getting your fifth, to building your database. And, you know, over the course of a year, you got a nice database with, I don't know, 30, 50 people that have all given you money, maybe more. But see, now it becomes real easy to raise capital because on your next deal, you now have this network, you send out an email with a little tear sheet, people raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm liquid for 50 grand, call me, Brad, let's have a talk about it. Before you know it, you have the propensity and ability literally to raise a million dollars over the course of the week because you built that neural network, you built that database. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think there's a ton of opportunity out there, I would agree. But like you just said, you have to position yourself so that you're ready for it. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing I'll tell you. And I had this conversation with a guy the other day that's a student of ours. He was literally like chicken little. He's like, oh, man, it's getting so hard. Oh, my God, you know, I'm really struggling. And oh, my God, I'm like, where's this coming from? It's like, man, it's all over the damn news. And I said, bingo. I said, you've allowed your mindset and what you're hearing as an external force to control you and the conversations you're having with others. I said, conversely, I'm raising a bunch of money. I'm like having a heyday. I said, you got to change your mindset because what you're hearing is affecting you internally. And it's kind of like Zig Ziglar said, you know, whatever the mind believes and conceives, it can't achieve. So if you buy into the news and you take that internally and you start basically thinking, oh, it's going to be tough to raise money. People are not going to want to invest. You're going to get exactly what you're looking for. But if you're confident and you are of the mindset that money's flowing and people are investing and you got a great deal, <laughs> you're going to see a very different result 
but you get exactly what you expect. You, you get what you put out to the world. So a lot of raising capital and doing it successfully, as you and I both know, Garrett, is largely mindset and confidence. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And that's a great place to uh, to stop here. But before we do uh, say goodbye here, I, I ask this guest every question uh, and I'd like to hear what you have to say. So this is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success and what does winning look like for you? You know, it's changed uh, over the course of my life. Uh, you know, when I was much younger, it was largely tied to success and, you know, the material possessions that come with that. Uh, but as I've gotten older and matured and really got to a point now in life where I pretty much have everything I desire, have a great life, um, success for me really is really seeing success in other people. It's kind of creating that legacy. Uh, I get so much of a thrill when I get testimonials or I get emails or I see that somebody has now changed their life because I've touched them in a positive way, whether it's through my books whether it's through my coaching, whether it's showing up at my boot camps. And so the definition of success, at least for me in my life today, is really seeing the success that I'm imparting and bringing to other people. Nice. No, I uh, that resonates with me as well. Well, you've brought a ton of value to us, and I'd like to thank you. We'll, uh, we'll put your information uh, in our show notes so people can reach out to you. And yeah, I'd like to thank you again for uh, for hanging out with me for the last hour. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Garrett. And, you know, we're looking forward to get up to Canada here, hopefully in the next couple of months. Uh, I've been invited to speak in some events up there in Toronto and also over in Calgary. We obviously have a huge student presence throughout all of Canada, literally from Vancouver all the way up to Quebec and all of the places in between. So, you know, let's stay in touch. I hope that I've added value and more importantly for your listeners, really touched upon some of the things that maybe they're doing wrong. And, you know, I always tell people, if I can impart knowledge and teach you some of the mistakes to avoid, now that you know what not to do, you'll get much better at knowing what to do. So it's been a pleasure. You can have me as a guest anytime. And thank you so much for reaching out and inviting us to your podcast today. All right. Well, take care and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to Win is not only about helping you to win more, but WIN actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.